Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome to episode 24 of Top of Mind with Contilia Wealth. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the most obvious recession that just doesn't seem to happen. (laughs) We are going to talk about the debt ceiling, which is probably the most in-the-news topic. We've got a couple of emails from our clients on this, so we thought that we would address it here live. Year-to-date performance in the markets that you would not have predicted on January 1st. Um, Just some interesting things on what's going on with the, the various asset classes this year. And finally, what... Target and Home Depot earnings tells us about the economy. I am joined, as always, with uh, by Hao Dang, and um, it is May seventeenth, twenty twenty three, at nine fifty four a.m. How the market is up seven point seven percent year to date. By the market, I mean the S and P five hundred, and International is up eleven and a half percent. So that's some good news, but. Um, Maybe you can help our listeners understand how in the world has that happened so far? Yeah, as, a, as what everyone expected for this year, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Heading to the year with decades high inflation, uh, impending recession, Ukraine, you name it, right? What government Strange job market, yeah, high Washington. interest rates, weird real estate stuff going on. Yeah. We're expecting a crash, and people are spending our way out of it, maybe. Yeah. But that's, I think this is going to be the theme of our episode, where we, we've always said, get invested, stay invested, because you never know. And again, we read all this stuff, too, obviously, right? So if you're seeing the headlines, it's most, most likely already priced in, or priced forward, or what, what does the other side look like? Uh, that's what the stock market tends to do doesn't get always wrong because it, it's basing on predictions, right? There's something that could rock us that we're not seeing. Mm-hmm. But all the stuff that we're going to mention today, we, we're seeing it. It's obvious, right? It's in, it's being reported. And we've always said anything in, in the financial news is history. It's already something that's already happened. And did we see this 8% up on an S&P? No way, right? Uh, 11 and a half in the international markets? No way. Their inflation was worse than ours, and how are they doing better, right? And and they, to, and they didn't necessarily fall further, by the way. Correct. Last year, yeah. Yeah, and right now the the performance has been so good in the last three years internationally is actually is as ahead of U.S., which is just a weird stat to think about because everyone assumes the U.S. has been so dominant. Mm-hmm. We're not saying the tide's turning, but. We're, we're saying get invested, stay invested, stay diversified. I think that's, even if, you know, all the data is, not the data, but the headlines are pointing in a different direction, right? You should be doing this, you should be doing that. And I think that's what we're here to dispel. You have an interesting quote here. This is from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and there have been 30 recessions since 1871. 
which is the longest period that performance data is available for the S&P 500. And if you look at how the S&P 500 performed six months before each of those 30 recessions, you would find that it had a positive return 21 out of the 30 times. So even if you knew that a recession was coming, and as we like to say, the media has accurately predicted 20 out of the last 10 recessions, even if you knew this recession was coming and you knew uh, when exactly it was going to happen, you still most likely would be better off not changing anything and just staying in. Or even better, continually buying every time you get your paycheck. Sure, yeah. Now, the, the, the shape you're in since the bottom of October of 2022, if you were able to keep your job, which most people have, apparently, yeah, according to very the strong. Yeah, yeah, very strong labor market, and if you have a 401k or you're contributing in some other form, you're, you've been buying lower and you've been benefiting from it. So why is this the most obvious recession that just doesn't seem to happen? 96% of economists are saying a recession's coming late 2023 or early 2024. Um, this very specific time frame. Uh, and anyone you ask, right? Non-economists as well. It's like, there's got to be a recession coming, right? But then you go to a restaurant or you go out to anything that is activity-based, right? Go to a golf place or go to a bowling alley. They're not empty by any mm -hmm. stretch. They're, they're at near capacity. Mm -hmm. So the consumer is spending in different places. Again, we'll get to Target and Home Depot, like Chris mentioned, but... I think there's quite a bit of spending going on. And if this continues, you don't get a recession if the consumer is spending the way they're spending. Mm -hmm. Right? And we, we understand things will change because of that because unemployment should tick up. We're at still 3.5%. The target is 5%, so 1.5% unemployment increase, which, you know, that's millions of jobs lost. That could probably do it. <clears throat> If you lose your job, you probably aren't going to the bowling alley or, or top golf. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that spending has softened a little bit, but clearly not by a whole lot. Uh, and it, it does seem to be across the board. You've got business spending and consumer spending, right? So we reported on big tech earnings um, about two weeks ago, which was a total blowout. I mean, big tech just absolutely crushed it. They crushed it in in two ways, though. They they had some revenue growth in general but they maintained or grew profits. And that could be in part or was part because they controlled expenses through whether it's layoffs or just changing around some research and development projects and capital X, you know, CapEx expenditures and those kinds of things. Um, however, what was reported in there for companies that work directly with other businesses, like say Microsoft, was reported that other businesses are slowing their spend. Uh, Microsoft and Amazon talked about this with their cloud services is hey we're seeing we're seeing you know smaller contracts or contracts getting renewed at the same level when they normally would be renewed at bigger levels. So some spending is changing, but to your point, how people are still getting on airplanes, people are still filling filling up their cars with gas. Which by the way, gas is not as cheap as it was a little bit ago. It seems like that missed the news. Whatever. Yeah. Well, egg prices dropping seem to miss the news too. 
which I never see. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like I stare at these prices now at the store because I'm... So so sensitive to inflation, right? Yeah. Well, I'm waiting yeah. for it to go down like 50 cents or something, you know, and then you tell me that egg prices drop and I'm like, well, that's really great. But, you know, when egg prices drop, I guess it's really just a, it's a, it's a raw material type thing. It's not like, you know, Kroger is going to lower their prices by 50 cents. Maybe they are and maybe they do. I just don't see that at my grocery store. I don't see... Sure, sure. The price moving by 50% every 50 cents every week to adjust for, you know, the actual cost of that raw good. Well, eggs are perishable. So if grocery stores aren't dropping their prices on eggs, they're, they're going to be stuck with a lot of rotten eggs. That's and I, I think that's what makes commodities, perishable commodities, so um, sensitive to pricing, mm -hmm. right? Because people aren't buying bananas or apples. Well, they only have a shelf life of a few days, right? Mm -hmm, if you're not selling mm -hmm. them, you have to lower prices. Hmm. Let's move to the debt ceiling. We've gotten a handful of questions from clients on this. I think that like most things these days, this is probably the most in the news. This whole thing has, has been. Um, I just want to start by saying in the last hundred years, over a hundred times, the debt ceiling has been raised or suspended, suspended meaning there was no debt ceiling for a period of time. So this is actually very normal. And um, it's just that we all know about it a lot more because the media loves this and um, everybody writes an article around, you know, what has good SEO and uh, well, look at us, we're talking about it too. So <laughs> I guess maybe someone will YouTube search us and, and, and they'll land on our video because of the debt ceiling. Yes, debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling. Hopefully. Yeah, let's say it a few more times. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, how you had some interesting stats on like how this started to become a thing in 2011 and just kind of what, when it became, I guess, popular or, or, or media popular to the average person. And I just thought it might be helpful for our listeners if you could unpack that data a little bit. Yeah, your, your context actually helps a lot where. You know, since 1917 was when the debt ceiling officially became a thing. Hmm. 1917, so over 106, 107 years at this point, where up up until 2011, we haven't had any debt ceiling drama. It's always been par for the course, right? Congress would meet, <clears throat> negotiate a little bit, and then raise the debt ceiling or suspend yeah. it. Yeah. So it became an issue in 2011. It was an issue again in 2013. And an issue, again, in 2018, much less so. And now an issue again in 2023. So it seems like um, the party not in power is using the debt ceiling to generate anger or raise, you know, raise uncertainty. But isn't that uh, always how it's been? It's, all, yeah, it's always been a politics, hey, one right? party's in power. We're going to try to get something. So yeah, the, yeah. the difference is that we all just know about it now almost in real time. I mean, there was a, there, you know, Biden had met with, with, um, McCarthy. Yep. And, and, you know, the, the first headline was nothing happened. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Well, it's you the know? first meeting. Yeah. Well, of course you're not going to, again, deal, was you're dealing with trillions of dollars right. and you're not going to have a single meeting and have it resolved in a single meeting or within a few hours. Right. It's it, there's a lot at stake for both sides who, you know, uh, Democrats want more social programs, more social spending. Republicans want to rein all that in, right? Um, we, we try to be neutral, but uh, it, it's only been recently weaponized 
I think that's the point I was making since 2011, where where someone found this, I don't know, this negotiating tactic and used it to essentially hold the country hostage. And it did run into problems in 20, uh, 2011 and 2013 in terms of government shutdown, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. So what happened there was we couldn't reach an agreement, our credit got downgraded, and we still had to pay our debts. So when you, you have a, a loan out, in in this case, I owe Chris money, my credit quality drops, I have to pay more in interest to make up for the heightened risk that Chris has taken on by loaning me money in the first place. Mm-hmm. So what happened was we technically did default we didn't miss payments but uh, technically what happened was we pulled money from other sources um worst case scenarios we pull money from social security medicare other entitlement programs that have bigger budgets to pay debt right so if china owns our debt we have to pay them right Uh, (laughs) we could print money can't really print money in a in a non-lifted debt ceiling scenario like this because we that's in a technical term that's that's why we can't pay or operate the way we've operated so that's technically a default where we're we're pulling we're robbing peter to pay paul essentially right now now i understand this is is a two two different things so the first is let's say debt ceiling isn't raised we can use other essentially like other money and other checking accounts elsewhere which is, okay, Social Security has a checking account or this other service has a checking account and that has you know, six months of runway in it before we need to issue more bonds to refill the checking account. And so we can use that, that money in an emergency situation. And then it's required that it's paid back as soon as the debt ceiling is, is, uh, is raised. So exactly. first and foremost, yeah. So first and foremost, we want people to understand this isn't, if it goes this route, it's not taking money from Social Security, which is further hurting Social Security. It does get repay, repaid. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, imagine your your family budget. Your your car breaks down. You're going to take money out of your medical savings and sure. put yeah take from that bucket and put it in this bucket. So uh, technically, in in pure definitional terms, it's it's defaulting because the money that we had earmarked for this isn't available, right? So, but uh, not but, the worst case scenario actually. But the the second thing that I understand there is. We have monthly interest payments on these on yep. these these debts, right? On these bonds, but really, those don't get defaulted on. You know, okay, we're borrowing money from somewhere else to pay those those debts, but a real default would happen if one of these bonds matured, and we didn't have the lump sum to to pay back the bond. So, for context, when a bond is issued, a lump sum is received. Let's say we issue a million dollar bond as the as the as the country. So a bond is issued for a million dollars, the country gets a million dollars in their bank account, and then they start paying these monthly interest rates or interest coupon payments yep. on that. If it's a ten year bond, at the end of ten years that million dollars is paid back to whoever bought the bond. And so the to the investor in that bond, they got their original million back plus they earned all the interest over time. So that's how bonds work. And so I guess what I'm trying to unpack here is you have kind of this technical default, which is, okay, we don't have the money to pay our interest payments, but we are anyways, because we're borrowing it from somewhere else. But then the real default would happen if a bond came due and we 
literally didn't have that same yes. million dollars to pay it back. That's the correct. That's the worst scenario where we go from technical to default default, right? So what you did a really good job of explaining what a probably worst case scenario is is we're we're no longer good for our debts. One that has uh, big global global ramifications. So government shut down. Uh, um, people losing their pension, Social Security, Medicare. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those can definitely be replenished. But I think in this case, we if we're no longer good for our debts, we're we're devaluing our currency because people lose faith in any kind of U.S. U.S. related government debt. Mm -hmm. And again, this is doomsday scenario where very low likelihood of it happening. So Chris did a timestamp, uh, Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy came out of their Tuesday meeting yesterday and said they have enough common ground to come up with a solution to raise the debt ceiling, <laughs> right? And that's probably why the market is already reacting pretty positively, right? And no, no agreement has been made, but the doomsday scenario doesn't seem like it's going to be the biggest issue. So that's kind of the worst case scenario that we've covered and sort of what could happen yeah, if we yeah. default. And there's multiple levels of this, or I shouldn't say if we default, just if we don't raise the debt ceiling, there's a handful of things that, that would happen before we actually default on debt, which uh, to my knowledge has never happened before in the US. Never happened, correct. Never happened before. Pretty unlikely. Um, it doesn't mean that this won't be in the news daily, but um, it's pretty unlikely that it gets this far. What I thought it would be interesting to talk about is our view on markets related to the sure. risk of this situation. And I'll just share kind of my, my high-level thoughts and then I want to hear yours. Our, our thinking in general is if the debt ceiling is raised in time, right? We, did, we didn't bump into it. it. It's raised before we actually you know hit the ceiling. Our thinking is that the market might react positively anywhere from, say, zero to 5%, because some of this is already priced in, right? The market might have no reaction when the debt ceiling is raised because they might have priced in that it's going to happen anyways. Yeah. No one knows until we know. If the debt ceiling isn't raised and we get into this sort of political gridlock, um, that could cause markets to come down because it creates further uncertainty. Markets hate uncertainty and they tend to sell off in the face of that. Our thinking is that downside could be anywhere from say five to 15%. Here's the risk. What if someone were to make a material change to their portfolio or worse, get out and go to cash because they're trying to miss that down? A, we don't know if the down will actually happen. We don't know by how far. And the key in getting out, which we never recommend to clients, is you also have to know how to get in and when. And there is never going to be a flashing green light that says now's the time to buy back in. In fact, the news will always get worse if you are the one yeah. that went to cash. It's always something new, right? <clears throat> if the market goes down from your sell point, you're like, cool, it'll go down further. It'll go down further. I'll get in lower. I'll get in lower. If the market goes up from your sell point, you will likely start thinking, okay, I'm going to wait. It's going to come back down. I'm going to wait. It's going to come back down. And those things may never happen. So I would strongly, strongly, strongly caution anybody that's considering making major or even really kind of minor changes to their portfolio because long-term, we've been through this over 100 times and the markets generally push forward. 
Yeah, and markets don't care about your feelings or they don't care about what you read in the headlines, right? Um, Again, if headlines didn't exist, the market still would fluctuate, Mm -hmm. right? The headlines are just giving it some kind of a label. Oh, the market went up because of the X or went down because of the X. And, you know, our definition, Chris, it's always more buyers than sellers or more sellers than buyers. It's (laughs) that simple. Mm -hmm. And if... If you were looking at sentiment, which is at a historical low, which is so insane to me, how is the sentiment lower than it was in 2008, 2009? But how many times people look back and at those S&P charts and said, why didn't I buy in 2009? I was still employed. I was one of the lucky nine out of 10 people, right, who still had a job. And I didn't buy. And because I'm suddenly brave after the fact. I'm, I'm never brave in the moment. And that's what makes hindsight investors so dangerous is they always think that they always had a cool head when it wasn't the case right if you're thinking about going to cash now you're not cool-headed i think you're you're not looking at this as an opportunity you're looking at this through a lens of fear and i think that's incredibly dangerous way to invest at the same time it's a dangerous way to invest uh completely contrary Mm -hmm. meaning you always see doom and gloom in the apocalypse as an investing opportunity. I think that's very unhealthy as well. Sure. But I think uh, we're, we're trying to rein it more optimistically because I think if we saw speculation like we did in 2020, if we were doing this, this podcast then, we probably would have started asking people to start rebalancing, start trimming a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I know things are good, but nothing moves up perpetually all the time nothing moves down all the time. Mm-hmm. So if you think you know exactly what the market's going to do based on news that you're seeing, trust me, people like Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, uh, JP Morgan, all have algorithms that are parsing the data and information in a much grander scale and much deeper scale than any human can do. Mm. Right. I know we're in the midst of this AI push. If firms have been using AI for, for quite a few years to do exactly what you think you're doing with your portfolio. I want to add to that. Um, when the markets come down, we, so if you're a client of ours, you'll, you'll remember this. I guess you've been a client of ours for a couple of years. That is <clears throat> we in 2020, as the markets are falling in COVID, we send out what we call a call for cash email. And we have certain targets that, you know, when the market falls quickly and, and, and by a certain amount, we just send an email to all of our clients and we, effectively say, hey, we have no idea where the market bottom is. We aren't market timers. It's down from its highs. You know, PE ratios look better. If you have cash, send it in. With that said, it's a crazy time and, you know, don't use your emergency fund because you never know if a job changes or, you know, something happens, right? Uh, I followed my own advice in that, which I, I, I always do anyways when we send out these emails. So <laughs> I, I actually, yes. actually drop in some of my own money and, and that is one of the times... I wish I did more, um, to your point earlier, you know, it's not all about just, okay, markets go down. I want to buy, 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 but, or, and when that happened, um, I mean, that was admittedly probably one of the best trades I've ever made. Just dropping money into the diversified portfolio when it had fallen 30% in like two weeks. Yeah. Fantastic. So keep a cool head to your point and just kind of follow the plan. If the markets do drop, Feel awesome about your 401k contribution in that month. Because you're buying If you're lower. sending money yes. monthly into your other accounts, feel awesome about that that month. And 
know that when you're doing that, you're going to look back on that decision or that month down the road and say, that was one of the best investments I ever made. Yeah. And I think the biggest investment regrets are missing people missing or stewing on the opportunities missed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's always in 2013. Oh, I should have invested in 2010. I, I saw this coming because they, you know, it, it, you've heard it all. And it happens on the, the flip side too. It's like, well, I knew I should have pulled my money and put it in the cash because I saw this crash coming. No, you, you look at the chart. You're like, yeah. I knew right there I yeah. was going to sell and right there I was going to buy. Correct. Mm. And I think the the first article that Chris mentioned from Bloomberg is the the stock market is up 21 out of 30 times in recession. So the odds are before, we're going to have an up market. Recession. If, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in the debt ceiling, 2011. The market sold off about 15, 16%. Guess what it ended up at? So the, the, the sell-off happened in August. What did the market end at in 2011? I don't know. You tell me. Zero. Hmm. So we had a four-month 16.5% rally. Mm -hmm. Well, probably more because, you know, you drop 16, you need it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know the math right away, yeah. but yeah. you need more than 16% to recover a 16% loss. So, so anyone who was brave enough to buy into the... Greek debt crisis, right, which was at the same time as the debt ceiling crisis, you were paid off handsomely if you stayed invested in 2011 and stuck around for 2012 and stuck around for 2013 because 2013 was another 30% up year. So, again, we're, we're, we're running a marathon. We're not sprinting here. Let's shift into the year-to-day performance of the markets and, and the various areas of the markets that no one would have ever predicted as of January. We 1st. did, right? Of course we did. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to just highlight this. We've got some year-to-date data just on on indexes. So this is this is just looking at January first to the close of business yesterday. Uh, so that timestamp is through May sixteenth market close, and uh, the top performing asset class is guess what? Emerging or excuse me, international. International stocks like Europe, and it's up eleven point four percent this year. Large beating cap, everyone by a large margin. Yeah, beating everyone by a large margin. Large cap U.S. So that's S and P five hundred is up seven point seven percent. If you did not tune into uh, our last episode, um, we highlighted how just seven stocks are what pulled that index up. Yep. Without those seven stocks, which happen to be this run in big tech that's happened market would be up something like 1% to 2% on the year. And the third best performing asset class is, what is it, How A diversified portfolio. Diversified, well, that's a 60-40. 60-40. Yeah. So, so the third best performing asset class is emerging, emerging markets. markets. I just saw this and I had to highlight because I had this epiphany the other day. And if you put me in a room on January 1st and you said, hey, Chris, what are your predictions for the year? Right? Exact opposite of everything, right? Oh, and I should have mentioned before I go there, what's one of the worst performing asset classes this year? Small and mid companies. Small and mid-sized U.S. companies, which are negative on the year. Okay, if you put me in a room January 1st, I would have never told you that, A, Europe, which has, say, 10% inflation, they're heavily, heavily dependent on, on foreign oil, their economy is not doing great, arguably 
relative to the U.S. at least, job markets aren't good, yada, yada, yada. I would never have told you that that would be the best place to invest this year. Secondly, I never would have told you that emerging markets, which is predominantly dominated by China and India and others, but those are the two big ones. You talk about all the negative press around the Adani group in India. You talk about uh, the, the political environment in China yeah. um, and their economic restart and recovery and this kind of thing. You're telling me that's one of the best places to be this year. And finally, I would have never told you on January 1st that we would go through a regional bank, I'll call it a crisis in the U.S., where we've had failure after failure, takeover after takeover in small regional banks. And those companies are a heavy weight in mid and small U.S. indexes. And that's why those indexes are flat to negative on the year relative to giant companies, which are up almost 8%. I could have never predicted any of that stuff with any level of accuracy. And it just speaks to how we can't try to get too fancy with it. We can't yeah. try to say, go all here or go all there because of what I think. Because if you did, I would argue that you would have completely missed international, which has been such an additive, additive holding in portfolios this year. And again, there's no way that anybody would have said, let's sell mid and small companies. Well, uh, I'll throw in another one uh, as a class. I mentioned it when you uh, were highlighting small and mid cap uh, commodities. I think they're the worst performing sector in the whole group down 9% on the year. Mm. But if you were to ask me on January 1st where I thought commodities were going, I thought higher, right? Because everyone was like, commodities are so expensive, they're going to get more expensive. And um, we never really touch on commodities because that's not our expertise at all. But who would have thought that asset class, like oil, uh, copper, iron, iron, lumber, you know, that's that's all down 9%. And we've, we have said their commodities are cyclical. Like uh, we mentioned gas prices in the summer were predicted to go uh, $3.65 a, a gallon. It touched, what, $3.21, so hmm. nowhere near the target. Like it was a healthy amount off from the prediction. And the biggest mistake people make is assuming a trend will keep going the way it's going. Momentum, yeah. Yeah. Commodities, for context, has been the absolute worst place to be for a broad-based broad index in the last 15 years. And uh, it has commonly returned negative returns year over year, with the exception of 2021, and it was up 27.1%, and 2022, which was up 16.1%. And so it's no surprise that this year it's, you know, it's negative about 9 and these are broad baskets, right? Um, I think I predicted that, but I won't take the full credit. <laughs> well, it was the last time you saw an oil company create value like Microsoft does or Amazon does. And they had insane profits last year, right? You're like, yeah. this has to change. Yeah. Like, I can think of a better situation in the last two years for an oil company. Yeah, they, they've probably had their best two years in a while, but it's no, nothing lights out. Let's shift over for our final topic today, which is what Target and Home Depot earnings tells us about the economy. So Target just released yesterday and Home Depot released, I think it was the week before last. Um, I thought I would just highlight some interesting things that, that Target said. And, and, and by the way, the reason for these two companies uh, and really these two, these two areas is it highlights consumer spending. Consumers spend money at Target or a grocery store. They buy backpacks. They buy apples, right? Uh, and then Home Depot is also a stock that is 
It shows confidence, consumer confidence, because people go and they buy lumber and they buy things for their house and whatnot uh, when they feel like times are good. So Target, um, Target actually reported pretty decent earnings. Their stock's actually up today. They reported uh, overnight. Their stock's up a couple of percent today. Um, so they beat earnings, but they gave a very lackluster forecast. And um, most of what they said here, which I thought was interesting, is they said that they're seeing softening in certain sectors of their business. Um, Target is a really interesting company because they sell kind of everything. They, you know, they sell grocery, they sell lawnmowers, they sell baby stuff. Um, you know, you can buy a barbecue there, right? They sell everything. And um, they said that they are seeing more softening in some of the kind of extra extra goods, uh, what they call discretionary merchandise. So things like apparel and home goods. So um, maybe we're seeing some softening in sort of the, I don't need that, but I want that type of spending. We talked about it in episode two, right? We were seeing XX inventory and Crocs was high up there and so was a Yeti. Yeah, who's... Well, admittedly, we bought Crocs for the whole family, but <laughs> they're super comfortable. But a Yeti, Yeti is probably sitting on a lot of steel inventory. And actually, Target commented on that, on that yeah. in their earnings here. They said their inventory growth was minus 16% year over year, which was actually really good. Their good consensus estimates were for minus 5.1. So they, you know, they beat that. They cleared out a lot of inventory. Yeah. Um, and net sales, net sales are good. Profit margins are good and this kind of thing. Still dealing with a lot of theft. I think that's kind of an interesting thing that's starting to get reported on earnings. I don't know how I, if I, if I think that's just a fun with numbers thing that's always been there. Um, you know, it's a new line item that, that companies are seeing charge offs. I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it yet. Uh, they said that, okay, this is crazy. I'll just comment on this and we'll move on. They said that theft of merchandise Actually, let me just read this. It says, in its earnings release, Target estimated that inventory shrinkage, which was mostly the theft of merchandise, would clip profits by a whopping $500 million this year. That's insane. Anyway, yeah, that's a lot of theft. Five, half a billion dollars in theft? I mean, this isn't stealing candy bars. I mean, this must be high, higher ticket items. That's yeah, what, what I found is a lot of uh, stealing is coming from employees. Hmm. But again, not to trash any employee at a retail store, but it just seems to be the common, common thievery, I guess, group of uh, retail stores. Hmm. Let's shift over to Home Depot. What are you seeing in Home Depot's earnings and what's similar to this and what's different? Yeah, very similar. Their earnings, uh, they did beat profit, uh, notably on the, um, not by selling more, but selling selling less at higher prices, right? Hmm. And that's what inflation is doing. Um, it's helping their margins. You can see they, they're, they're healthy margins. Um, their revenue was down by uh, over a billion dollars in terms of expected versus reality. Uh, that's a big miss in a quarter, like a really historically big miss. It's about, tw about 20 years since uh, Home Depot had gone as a public company without missing revenue that by that much wow well yeah. how, what's their quarterly revenue and i guess i'm just thinking like yeah. how big is a billion dollar drop oh sorry yeah context 38 billion dollars expected 37 billion it's not reported. i mean okay it's a billion dollars but it's not crazy 
No, and it shows you how the the loss in vo- volume, right? It's it's not counterbalanced or counteracted by higher prices, right? You mm-hmm. raise prices, you sell less, you make the same amount of money. I see. Yeah, it's one of those situations where uh, people are buying less. Very similar to Target, Gui- guidance was lower. They're 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 preparing for a real slowdown in in uh, home improvement buying. Right, at least at least in the way we've seen in the last, let's say three years now. Right, um, twenty twenty peaked. Now it's been gradually to exponentially slowing. It's like we're seeing a real slowdown in Home Depot, um, and probably with Lowe's. I've didn't have the Lowe's article, but I'm sure they're experiencing the same slowdown in in home improvement spending. Stocks up four percent today, Home Depot. Yeah, <laughs> Lowe's is up three and a quarter. You never know. <clears throat> Interesting. So you're saying earnings was, but then, but then guidance was pretty soft. I think is what you're saying, right? Yeah, and I, I see this as an encouraging sign for long-term investors. I think we're setting up similar to uh, 2017, similar mm-hmm. to a 2019, where um, the years prior to those great years. To remind everyone, 2017 had zero. One percent down days in the entire year, right? Uh, Twenty nineteen was very similar in terms of the S and P performance. Prior to those years, those great blockbuster years were relatively mild to bad earnings. More importantly, earnings guidance. So we're lowering the bar hmm. for next year and the year after. What happens if we do get a recession, but the bar is so low we could just walk over it, step over it? I think that it's setting up for a real good earnings surprise for the following year because all these companies are tampering down expectations. I think both of these two are really exceptional examples of how the market prices in potentially worse news than actually is released. Home Depot came out, <laughs> they missed by a billion dollars. They which is a couple of percent, not not crazy, right? But they missed by a margin. They had they were more profitable and they gave kind of poor guidance. <laughs> Their stock's at 4%. Why does that happen? I think this is a good reminder that markets sometimes price in a worse, worse case. And when the news is less bad, things jump. Um, Target's the same, right? Target is up today. And Target beat earnings but gave weak guidance. And you know, their stock is up you know, about 2.5% yeah. today. Yeah, I'm curious about Target 2024 You know, in May. Because they're, they're pinning on today's... For, or whatever, whenever they reported a few weeks ago, they're pinning on that forecast. Yeah. And if that forecast is uberly low, even if things are bad, that's not a high bar to clear. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see next quarter how they do. Awesome. That's all the time we have today. I got to go. Um, thanks, Hal. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun, Chris. Talk thanks, soon. everyone.